0: This is Aton Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger, and you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys.
1: China. Just saying the name of this country is enough to spark so many different associations in most Westerners minds. But the truth is China has a vast population of 1.4 billion people, almost 20% of the world's population that live across 9.5 million square kilometers. And to put all of these people into under one word, China, it's a bit difficult. There are so many different types of people, so many different religions in China. We, little did we know, there are there is a population of Jews in China. And today we are joined by Noam Urbach, a China expert, active in academia, in business, and in media. Noam specializes in the study of the history of foreign religions in China. In particular, the history of Chinese Jews as well as Chinese religious policy. We are super excited to have him on the show today to talk China and religions in China specifically. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So there are Jews in China?
2: Um sort of, yeah. <laughs> How many? Do you know? <laughs> Is there like a huge Jewish population? No, so it's no simple no straightforward answer. Uh, let's put. Let's separate two categories, okay? There are foreign expat Jews. Okay. okay. That's clear, like, in any international, uh, any global country, in the international cities of China, you have growing, uh, at least until COVID-19, you had uh, growing uh, concentrations of uh, of foreign Jews, Israeli, American, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, usually uh, adjourned, you know, concentrated around Chabad houses and... Uh, or reform unaffiliate, unaffiliated uh, small communities. Yeah, Chabad so is that, like,
1: uh, it's like there's three things in life that are certain, death, taxes, and, and, Chabad. and Chabad, right? Yeah, no matter where you are. Yeah,
2: so they Chabad. came to China as well. It started, the first place was <laughs> Hong Kong. Okay. And that's back, I think, in the 80s already, And yeah. uh, but only in 2000, uh, uh, around 2000, Shanghai was the first, in, in mainland China, and then Beijing. But how long were Jews? Yeah, but so other, that's than
1: the, other than the expat. Okay, so that's the expat. And let's yeah.
2: let's go back to the, the
1: earlier category. Like are there are there actually Chinese Jews?
2: Yeah, cuz okay. so the earlier categories will be the earlier expats, meaning uh, immigrants who came in the 19th century and early 20th century and of course okay. the famous the famous uh, uh, case of the Shanghai Holocaust fugitives in World War II, uh, almost 30 people 30,000 Jews mainly from Germany. 3,000 or 30,000? 30,000. 30,000. Yeah, around 30,000 Jews uh, who found a safe haven in in Shanghai. That's a very well, you know, repeated and, uh, you know, again and again told and retold story in all kinds of, uh, also I would say romanticized uh, Mm -hmm. fashions, you know. In Shanghai, every so often you have uh, some new book, story, film uh, uh tv series cartoon series uh musical theatrical play you know all kinds of uh of depictions and uh, it's kind of, a, of that I, story I mean, it's
1: familiar i'm not sure if i know the. there's deal, a museum in shanghai as well. is it like a one-man thing is it like the chinese schindler or is it, was it like an operation by the chinese chinese yeah so companies? there
2: is one 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 individual called his name is he feng shan who uh, is has become really identified with this uh, story of Shanghai even though technically his role was uh, was only you know it was only one section of it because many any jew theoretically who could get out of europe uh, could arrive in shanghai the whole the whole what made shanghai uh, a safe haven a place where jews could escape to was the fact that it was international and open and you didn't need a visa to get in Ah, oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, but then you some of them had to have visas to leave Europe. Mm-hmm. So, Shan is one of those who gave them a visa. Another one was the Japanese, uh, uh, Sugihara. Yeah. So Sugihara, both. Yeah. Yeah. So both these individuals are very. They're both recognized as Hasidim uh, Motolam as. Uh,
1: How do you pronounce his name?
2: The r- ch- righteous among the among the nations by Yad Vashem. Uh, so the is the Japanese, yeah. they're both associated with the escape of Jews. To the yeah. east, to either Japan, Kobe, or Shanghai, and, and someone through Kobe to Shanghai. That and the, also Ch- the Chinese
1: guy's name is. Is Xufeng Shan? feng Shan. Yes. It's so like, and there's so much. Di- it's I don't I don't know if it's just me, but I, th- I feel like the Chinese names are so much more difficult than the Japanese. Like Japanese is maybe a yeah. lot easier to pronounce. Yeah, I agree. Hufeng Shan. Yeah, Hefeng-shan. Okay, yes. and
2: before the 19th century. Okay, so that's 19th and 20th <clears throat> century. Before that, there's a big gap going way back to around the 10th century or the 11th century, uh, when uh, Jews, probably Persian-speaking Jews from Central Asia, be it Persia or today's Bukhara, Uzbekistan, immigrated, you know, traveled along the, uh, the Silk Road, the Silk Road to the edge, to the w- eastern Uh, most Chinese end of the Silk uh, Road which was practically Kaifeng it was the capital of China during Song Dynasty at that time Mm -hmm. and uh, you know traveling merchant Jews settled there and uh, this is documented
1: and did they they maintain their Judaism
2: okay so the whole thing by the way I must uh, point out you know there are theories that they came from India came through other routes but it's definitely the presence of Jews at that time during the 12th 13th 14th century was to do with the fact that Kaifeng was the capital of China and uh, on the end of the of the Silk Road. Were they okay. running away from something? Were um, they like escaping? Probably not, the Persian Probably no, no. According no. to you know estimates, I imagine they. You know, there's nothing accurate in the in the in this uh, history. Okay. Okay. Um, but uh, but it's somehow assumed, they end up in. China. Yeah, it's assumed that they, the same as they ended up in Bukhara and Samarkand and the Afghanistan of today. And there are uh, signs, you know, there all kinds of evidence that they were in Xinjiang. Uh, there were, you know, stations where they merchants. There are do- documents that were found oh, okay. in, in in Tajik Hebrew, you know, Tajik in, in Hebrew letters. Uh, so this whole thing was discovered, and that's part of my, you know, small contribution to the research. That's what my PhD is centered on: is the Christian element within the story of Kaifeng Jews. So from the beginning, from the first moment they were discovered to the world that there is what we can now discuss, talk about as Chinese Jews, was discovered by Christians. And actually by actually the first Catholic missionary who uh, in a, you know, m- settled in China, moved to China, Matteo Ricci, in the end of the 16th century. And actually in 1600, that's the, the year when he first encountered the person from Kaifeng when he was already in, in Beijing as the first you know catholic missionary uh, he encountered a jew a person who he assumed he understood was a chinese jew at, so,
1: at that time they were still practicing their their judaism but is did they maintain hmm. it or are there still remnants of the even
2: at that time clear according to what we have which are actually quite elaborate uh, the descriptions and documentation by the by different emissaries who jesuit you know christian catholic emissaries who went especially traveled to Kaifeng during the early um, uh, 17th century mm-hmm. actually until the last time was 1724. Um, so for over 100 years you, have, you had visits of Jesuits, priests, which were very intellectual uh, European uh, priests, Catholic priests, who traveled to Kaifeng to tread quite a few times to document uh, what they could about the community. And mm-hmm. the community then was, def- was clearly a Chinese Jewish community because their language their main language was Jewish it was Chinese they had a combination of using you know Chinese and Hebrew together mm. textual Hebrew probably no speaking Hebrew no no evidence of them speaking Hebrew at that time but definitely using it as a ritual language mm. um how old is so the Chinese the... language is it older oh, than Hebrew oh so that's uh you know in diplomatic uh, events it's often uh, you know, use this this idea, this notion of Jew, Hebrew and Chinese as the oldest, you know, living traditions, li- living uh, uh, lingual, you know, systems, mm. language systems. Uh, so it's pretty old. The Chinese is a, you can you, you have beginnings five thousand years ago uh, theoretically, but uh, it really evolved in the the first thousand uh, five hundred uh, B.C. That's the first you know when we really see the uh it's called oracle bones where you see the, the first stages of chinese uh um chinese script
0: mm-hmm. when they oracle developed. bones
2: yeah the the first evidence of chinese writing ah. writing system were used as part of uh, you know s- like source source thing how do you what's the word when you <laughs> when you like uh uh all kinds of uh, seance practitioners you know uh, uh, okay would uh would uh, check things with sorcery. the spirits sorcery exactly yeah. that's the word. okay different types of sorcery one of the main uh techniques uh presumably then were when uh, a kind of a, a person or séance uh um a sorcerer a sorcerer yeah or some priest or whatever mm-hmm. would would uh, have a question to deal with that he has to find an answer, you know, by th- taking advice from the spirits above. Mm. So he would crack a bone, usually a hip bone of a, of a cow or another animal. Write something on it. And, and then he would analyze the cracks that would, uh, appear after cracking, you know, hitting the bone and checking the crack there. And that crack will tell him the secrets, you know, of the, of, of what the spirits are telling him the answer.
1: But were there to, writings on the bone? So, like?
2: after, so the results of that, his analysis was documented or with these generations, uh, upon generations of these sorcerers, their uh, analysis was documented. They documented it by writing these characters, which are the earliest forms of uh, uh, Chinese language. And surprisingly, wow. they're very close. <laughs> I mean, they have, you can, you can see, read it uh, not really read it uh, unless you're a, a scholar of yeah. that uh but if it's that familiar to yeah, modern you, you chinese see, words yes you can see the
1: Have google translate you can do oracle bones to english yeah <laughs> i'm sure
2: i'm sure google has that but yeah. you yeah. Ma- you master chinese mandarin i want to say master is a hard uh, word is <laughs> when you're talking about chinese language and i can tell you that i was much better at, uh, any year spent, any day year spent in Israel here without uh, using it yeah. daily on a daily basis, then my my Chinese language skills are deteriorating, both reading, writing, and and.
1: So speaking. you spent time there in China. But, how how long? But where?
2: I was, all, all in all, I was around three years in China. So the okay. first time was after the army, the traditional tiul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the trip after the, the army, the
1: traditional, but the unconventional in your case, because most people yeah. go to. Southeast Asia, so to lie on a beach, you went to China. Yeah, went
2: also to China. Three actually, that yeah, that was the main part of my trip was three months in China, and actually not in the popular places, not in the east coast of China where Shanghai, Beijing is, but in the outskirts, you know, in the periphery. Oh
1: wow, especially those.
2: Yeah, um, some would say okay. That's a funny. <laughs> it's not where of words, Chinese. Live, yeah, because right? real China would be between the rivers, like the Aram Naharaim, you know, between the rivers of Iraq. That's the beginning of mm-hmm. civilization here. So in China, it's between the Jiang, the, the Yellow River, and the Jiang, the Jianghe, the uh, Yangtze in English, Yangtze River, and, mm-hmm. and, and Yellow River. So okay. that's usually towards the eastern part of China, central eastern China. Uh, but I traveled more to the, you know, to the west to the the contentious parts like Tibet, uh, the yeah. Chinese government would excuse my French, but the contentious part of uh, of, uh, of China, Tibet, Xinjiang, places that became much more interesting, you know, today, because at that time, Xinjiang was not talked about, uh, not really discussed in international circles today much more. Mm-hmm. So I was there, uh, I was there a month and actually I picked up the, before learning Chinese, I picked up a bit of Uyghur language.
1: Ah, Uyghur, yeah. which is the the Muslim population. Yeah,
2: the the Muslim uh, population of uh, the most Western uh, province in China called Xinjiang.
1: Xinjiang. Yes. Okay, so wait a second. Let's go back one second to the Jews, and then I want to ask you kind okay. of more generally about religion in China and like what the major ones are, and we can dive into it a bit. But so beyond these. Kafghan Jews, which were exiles from Persia, Mm. there there is no there no earlier like Jewish population or evidence of an earlier Jewish population. It's not like I don't know like the Ethiopian or the Indian Mm. Jew where there's some kind of ancient, you know, maybe a lost tribe or something like that. That okay.
2: So so this kind of speculation uh, is you 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 hit it on I think on the spot. These kind of speculation rise up in all parts of the world. okay, And that's also a very interesting phenomenon, I think, that, that's worthy of more research. You know, uh, I, I consider it an obsession with Jews. Uh, and I have actually a few lessons that I can draw. And maybe in the future I will write about it something and make it more into a, a, a coherent theory or something. But what I discovered when seeing so much of Christian uh, involvement in this very small case of chinese jews you know it's never more than a few thousand people in the 150 years we're talking about since you know the past the last 150 years we're talking about no more than a few hundred people maybe Mm -hmm. Um, if if even they were living as a community before christianity came because i i see how much christianity was an influence was a, like an engine in raising awareness and attention. And even when you see, like when, cause as I told you, uh, Ch- Chinese Jews in Kaifeng were discovered in 1600 by Matteo Ricci, uh, uh, Christian. Jesuit, Christian, Catholic, yeah, uh, yeah monastery, uh, missionary. And then it was, contact was lost for a few hundred years. And then the next time was in the mid- middle of the nineteenth century when a, an Anglican church mission went to d- rediscover the Kaifeng Jews and found them and bought all their artifacts and sifre Torah and etc. So the newest uh, awareness or existence of Kaifeng Jews is also ignited by uh, Christians. This time, Anglicans, mm. and 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 this is well documented in books, etc. And actually, I what I what I'm showing in my Current uh, research, you know, is that it's not just a uh, by chance or on uh, like like by the by, yeah, it's it's not coincidental. Yeah. yeah, it's not uh, like an offhanded. Oh, let's go visit Kaifeng and see if the Jews are still there since they were last reported uh, two hundred years earlier. Um, but it was actually the first time the Anglican bishop of China, the first Anglican bishop who was appointed to China centered in uh, you know based in hong kong and he has jurisdiction of the entire uh, east asia he had jurisdiction of southeast asia as well and japan as well he was like the anglican bishop of east asia and his first mission out of his home base in hong kong was to kaifeng not him not him personally but he sent two emissaries To to find the jews in kaifeng so for us what is an anecdote a very you know unimportant oh, so there are a few Jews in China they were not really Jewish they were not They was some kind of Chinese maybe they were originally Jewish but then they intermarried so they're not really any Jews anymore etc but for Anglicans this was a big deal so why that's a good question that's in, in vaguely I would say like in a wide approach um, and this is beyond the issue of china this is just my theory that uh, at least since uh, since christianity and islam we're talking about a world which is obsessed with judaism because you have two world religions huge world religions christianity and islam both of them intrinsically obsessed with jews with judaism as a religion with jewish jews as a people it's all over their religion you know in their scriptures etc so you have a world imagining jews even before they see Jews, and having opinions about Jews, even before they meet Jews, and and seeing the huge importance for good or for bad uh, of Jews as something. So, kind, so of
1: kind of like today, there is today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah, things don't change, exactly, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was connected with Zionism as well. You had the first, uh, the first, um, um, a consul, British consul in Israel um, who, wrote, uh, uh, who wrote two books, actually, Finn. If, um, Phil. Yeah, fi, uh, Finn. Um, Finn or Phil? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, James Finn. Name okay, of. James okay. Finn. I'm confused for a second, but he actually published two two books in the later part of the 19th century, one when he was still in England, and then the other after he came back from 20 something years of serving in Jerusalem as the consul, the British consul Mm. in in Palestine, right? And he (laughs) published two books uh, about Kaifeng Jews with with a clear like, which were not merely academic, they were a clear like a manifesto calling, a call uh, to go and rediscover Kaifeng Jews and bring them to Israel and they will lead Zionism really no, and he wasn't jewish this guy no he was christian that's so weird <laughs> that <is. laughs> the, the, yeah you, you go back to you know how did the like a, of-
0: lost ark you know kind of uh yeah they must have imagined this ancient chinese jewish community has secrets
2: to the to i don't know it didn't go so far didn't I, I don't <clears throat> recall him writing that more uh um kind of a faith in you know you, you have Anglican Christians and uh, other Christians in America and North America as well uh, who were obsessed with Zionism before Zionism started. Yes, but why focusing on this particular um, Chinese community? Okay, so it, it's interesting because it's like Finn's case is a bit different. Other Christian groups saw this as uh, related directly to different prophecies of uh, that the gospel will come back you know, the, or Jews in the later days, you know, will come back from the edge of the world and they will complete the circle mm. and then come back to Jerusalem and that will bring the second coming of Christ. But that's more evangelical of sorts, I uh-huh. believe that. And I'm not, not an expert on that, but uh, it's, for James Finn, it was a, a, it was a personal, you know... Uh,
1: Connection.
2: Yeah, it was a personal mishigas, let's put it this way, okay? Uh, obsession with this uh that you would find other christians who would, uh, were obsessed with other jewish communities that need to be discovered okay like in india et cetera, in ethiopia uh, so james finch you know was let's go find the, the Kaifeng jews and that's yes. fascinating
1: to me yeah like how bored were these guys <laughs> <laughs> find a life Let's get alive yeah. why that's their life <laughs> Kaifen Jews find, find these Kaifun Jews. Yeah. So wait tell us a bit about your uh, time in China beyond the three months after the military so you spent three years there beyond that yeah okay yeah and and I where worked at, and I finished I and...
2: studied physics and computer and computer uh, science mm-hmm. and I finished the BSC a BA. And I worked in high tech in Israel, and I wanted to jump out the window because <laughs> I didn't find you know my calling in it yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh so in nineteen ninety nine I quit my job and I went to china and this time I said like my my idea was that I had enough traveling, I would rather now just sit in one place and do and, and learn. To understand better what's going on mm-hmm. and I had a chance to learn a bit Chinese in university uh, when I saw a post saying uh, that, you know there's an elective course in uh, Chinese modern Chinese and I found myself in that m- little course investing you know spending more time on homework for that course than any other physics course that I had it's or harder than physics yeah for me at least yeah it was harder I, I put some. Time, I put a lot of time, and then I felt results. I felt that I, uh, you know, the, the 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 language sat on me. You mm-hmm. know, well, maybe based on that three What's months. But like the I most hard,
0: har, the hardest concept for a Western language
2: to understand. I think that definitely the two aspects. One is the the writing system. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people, that's very hard. Uh, for everyone, for some people, it's more of a, of a turn down. So they so they give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is the pronunciation, you know, the, the phonetic element, especially not really the syllables and the consonants, but which are also weird, but the, actually the, the tona- tonality. But For the some people who are tone deaf, it's uh, very hard. I can tell you an interesting statistics after teaching more than 10 years Chinese that, uh, uh, you know, a standard first year Chinese, if you compare first year Chinese and first year physics in university, I believe the the dropout rate in Chinese is maybe as high as in physics. Because wow. I studied in physics when I was in physics, you know, <laughs> by the second year,
1: at least half were gone. <laughs> and in Chinese it's not that far. I'd imagine it would be higher in Chinese, because I'd imagine there's like two people and they both quit. <laughs> so it's like hundred percent. Yeah, you'd be surprised. But, uh,
2: oh, so so Chinese became popular because yeah. of the importance of China and the relevance of China, at yeah. least until COVID, I think it was always on the rise. Yeah. Apparently I've been hearing that statistically for some reason less learn i think let's be honest smart people don't waste time on studying chinese in a foreign university like in israel Mm -hmm. if you want to know chinese you go to china and that's how i learned i learned uh so you ended year. up
1: going to to
2: China and writing, enlisting into a university, and doing uh,
1: like an exchange program. No, or I just you, I just paid a few. And you could do bucks. that in '99. You could just sign up to a university and yeah, attend. Yeah, it worked as, online as any citi- as a citizen of any country in the world, or I'm specifically not. because it was Israel.
2: I'm not sure. You know, maybe if yeah, I I don't know. Basically,
1: you signed up, you got you pay in, something and, you, you, paid you, and guess, you were able to go. Where? Yes. In, China?
2: in Harbin actually, ah. in, which is also in, <laughs> an interesting place Where in, in terms of Jews. Where is it? Cuz that's where Olmert's father was born or grandfather was ah, or right. like Cuz yeah. Jews came there from the Holocaust. Russian Jews. Yeah. Not from, ah, Holocaust, not from the Holocaust. earlier late 19th century uh-huh. uh, Russian Jews who had an opportunity to you know to escape uh, anti-semitism in tsarist russia uh-huh. and they technically got jobs there and where uh, and where is it exactly on the edge of the siberian you know the siberian yeah. railroad okay. so it was a, basically a chinese so a russian like a northern city- yeah, yeah. northeast it, like the yes, manchuria it's the, exactly right? exactly oh, okay. it's the <laughs> northern part of manchuria look at you so it's the
1: northeastern part of china i don't yeah. know where that came from <laughs> sad <Mossad, laughs> okay, so, lessons yeah. Yeah. yeah so so that's where you went and you spent yes. two I was years? a semester
2: there and then the next semester I okay. left Harbin and I moved to Kaifeng. Uh,
1: and how was it there in college? Like, I mean, first of all, you were probably, I mean, everybody else was Chinese. You were the foreigner? No,
2: no. There was actually places like where I, it's not Beijing and Shanghai so there were definitely much less foreigners and foreign students as well. Uh, so in Harbin I took, I took uh, the cheapest university I could find because I figured, you know, I'm not here for anything fancy, just to know the language. So any place was good. And you were, and what were you studying? So it was a funny university called Northeastern Forestry University. Not one of the posh, famous places that foreigners were, yeah. you know, courting. Yeah. Uh, and there was just one residential building there, who's usually housed in the neighborhood that's housed by professors, you know, by teachers uh-huh. and workers of the university, within the compounds of the university. So they had this one building, which was for foreigners. To live, So some of them were uh, teachers, English teachers. Uh, there were a few Koreans, a few Japanese, three Finnish students who always came, were every year there for an exchange program with a forestry university in Finland. You know, they were also have forests in Finland. Uh, uh, it was a forestry university? Yeah, forestry. So you were studying forestry? No, no, no. <laughs> it, mean, it means that this university had a specialty in forestry studies. What but were they, you studying there? I was studying just
1: Chinese. Just Chinese? Yeah, so they were... had
2: a small program for foreigners to study Chinese.
1: So most of your classmates were actually foreigners?
2: Uh, yeah, but Korean and Japanese, yeah. predominantly Koreans. Okay. They I had see. one small program there that one Korean group, you know, was connected with them, and they opened this program. Did uh, you manage program.
0: to mingle with actual local Chinese people? Um, yeah, I think so,
2: from the beginning. That's. Uh... Did you date Chinese girls? Oh... You're asking as a census of question for uh, the T person, you know. Are okay. Okay. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if. Uh, I don't know if. You, so uh, the answer isn't yeah. that that
1: complicated. No. <laughs>
0: I wish it was. Okay. <laughs> oh really? No, okay. Sure. No. Sorry, <laughs> She's, it's just that I. We don't know your history here in Israel. Sometimes people with kippah. Maybe when they were young, they didn't have kippah. Maybe okay. you, you never know, right? Uh, I guess we, we found out what the
1: limits of the conversation. There's no censorship from China. No, I'm asking. My wife, maybe, yeah. anyway. <laughs> I'll get you out of this mess. There's censorship from my wife, maybe. I'll get you out of this mess. I'm
0: asking because okay. I, um, it's an anecdote, but I met this girl uh, who lived in China for several years until she fled during uh, just when COVID started. And she told me horrific stories about dating from a girl's point of Mm. view. But she basically told me that, generalizing, of course, all Chinese men, young Chinese men, are extremely childish Mm. and vulgar and undateable. Mm. So I was wondering...
1: How, i mean it's like 1.4 <laughs> billion people and you don't want to generalize da- she dated yeah listen, 700 I'm sure, I'm million sure chinese men i'm sure you'll get other perspectives from of other course. people of yeah yeah.
0: yeah yeah i know uh but uh, but yeah that's like the anecdote i heard so uh yeah it was just
1: curious how, do yeah. you, so what was social life like in the, in in Har- harbin in harbin harbin um like taking me back it's hard
2: for me to recall it was interesting basically uh-huh. But a lot, a lot of my experience was uh, the mingling with the Korean, with the Korean neighbors that I had, and flatmates, and mm-hmm. uh, and classmates, which yeah, were basically exactly. predominantly Korean. Actually, a funny anecdote there was that uh, uh, when I came, to, when I first arrived there, I was after one semester in Israel, and I pr- probably caught on quite well in terms of the pronunciation, but I was still just a beginner. So when I was, went into the office there in the university, he took me, he heard me speaking, and he said, whoa, straight to the advanced class. And I went to the class, I didn't understand anything. So he took me down to me- medium level, you know, and still didn't understand. So he took me to the f- basic level, and that was for me. And still, I, I, r- repeatedly, it happened in class that f- so I would get confused. Suddenly they talk fast, not in beginner level, and I can't understand anything. It suddenly sounds a bit different. And only after that, it took me some time to figure out that the teacher was a Korean-Chinese, mm. and anytime the Koreans had a problem understanding something, they switched to Korean.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> not fair.
2: Yeah, so I became the bad guys because I can. Com- maybe a bad you guy. don't
1: know, but in, like till today, you actually speak Korean. Speak Korean, Korean. yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it all got mixed up. Yeah, so
2: I complained, and then I was the bad guy because the the university. F- Forced them to to quit ah, to using stop. Korean, yeah, in class. Oh, okay, I see. So they were
1: scared of me, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so you spent yeah. about a semester there, and then yes. what? What was? And the then rest I moved to Kaifeng.
2: I traveled in the winter vacation, and I wanted to stop over in Kaifeng because I heard about this Jewish thing and I found it interesting, and uh, I stopped over and I saw there's nothing really. I found nothing there, you know. So I thought it was you know there was something in history, nothing now, nothing living now, but I liked the place, so I moved there. And I enlisted in a university there, because you have to be registered in some university to get a long term visa. Ah, okay, you have to have and, a student visa. Yeah, and actually, when I was living there in Kaifeng, then this the Jewish story kept coming back at me, and uh, I understood. and That's my my prelim, my first, my original research project, which was my MA thesis, and mm-hmm. it's published. And you're welcome to read it if you're very bored. <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> what I discovered there is that this. Minor issue, unexisting issue of Kaifeng Jews, which don't really exist, but it's just waiting—it's somewhere there under the earth, the you know, hiding under the earth—is was actually the most uh, how, do you say, how do you say the most pressing or the most promising, the most contentious issue of the city, In of the, the government of the city. Really, it was their hope of becoming international.
1: Wow! Because when when so, how it, did this come out? Like, how did you discover this?
2: Okay, so in the in late '80s, or in the during the 1980s, when foreigners started arriving in China and visiting China, especially Americans and Europeans, and they came, they read these books that were published earlier by academics in America, uh, books about Kaifeng Jews, especially mm-hmm. by Michael Polak, which a book that became really popular in the early '80s actually 70s already. So people read these books and they knew about Kaifeng Jews and they came to find them. So all kinds of businessmen, scholars, and et cetera, they stopped over in Kaifeng, just like I was curious. So this was in the 80s already. People would stop again and again. Jews would stop, and Christians, would stop in Kaifeng looking for Jews. And the potential, and in, 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 in then in, the, in the beginning, there were no relations with Israel. So it was clear to everyone that nothing can be developed here no Jewish community can be developed in Kaifeng and no you know, touristic uh, experience uh, regarding Jews can be explicit, you know, openly existing in Kaifeng because Jews are associated with Israel and there were no relations with Israel. But when relations started becoming closer and in 1989, the Madrid uh, conference, and then in 1992, there was uh, established diplomatic relations between Israel and China so right after that within months in Kaifeng was established the society to study Kaifeng you know the history of Chinese Jews an official society and by and I documented I, this I published this in my you know my research I, I found the government decision establishing this society and they had a stamp you know an official stamp and uh and uh wow. what's they say council whatever and within a, another few months The government made it, the local government, the municipal government, made a a clear decision to rebuild the Kaifeng synagogue, Hmm. which was a temple, like a Chinese temple, which was a kind of a Chinese-style Confucian temple, which was Jewish, which was also a synagogue. And they had Sifrit Torah and reading and everything, right? And uh, the clear decision to rebuild that synagogue. And they were looking for funds, etc. But that, within just a few years, it collapsed. This whole idea of reestablishing a Kaifeng okay. synagogue, and that's what I tried to analyze. That it was too complicated to justify the the threats or the the possibilities of things going getting complicated, of having a new religion which is not uh, not uh, officially recognized in China. Because in China you have and that was you, kind of your previous question. There are five recognized religions in China. Okay. So it's Buddhism, Taoism, Taoism being the, you know the original Chinese uh, uh, religion, Buddhism which came from India, and then Islam, and then Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. So that's five religions which are officially recognized. So any establishment which is a religious center has to be registered to be legal. It has to be one of these. And
1: Buddhism, Taoism, Islam. Christianity? Christianity and Catholicism. And Catholicism. It's
2: uh, two, two separate religions. Separate. Yeah. Okay. So, and all of these religions have a centralized organization, like a centralized church, that oversees uh, the operations. And they have to be independent. There are all kinds of rules. They have to be independent from foreign forces. They can't take money from outside of China. They can't take missionaries from outside of China. They have to be self-sufficient. Mm. And uh, they have to be patriotic, you know, for the Communist Party and the, their speech and their sermons are, are, are scrutinized, you know, to always make sure that they're following party line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there are all kinds of religious groups who separate and go underground. Mm. So they're not really legal. And often they can be, uh, depending on the political climate, they can be persecuted to some uh, extent.
1: Because okay. Islam, it's. It's, I mean, it is surprising to hear that Islam is a recognized religion, especially because of the dealing of the Uyghur Muslims. And also because there's this nationalistic, not nationalistic, but there's this, there's this like missionary, occupational, occupational, conquering kind of like element to Islam, right? Like in Judaism, there's the Zionist element. Yeah, Yeah, but in Christianity, there's also a missionary element. But in Islam, it's more like, I think you're thinking of the word jihad, right? Yeah, there's the jihadist, (laughs) right? Yeah,
2: so in China, definitely it's different. Uh, There are different kinds of of Islam in China, mainly the Uyghurs that you mentioned in the West, but they're a separate uh, ethnic group and with a separate language. They speak a Turkic language similar to Turkish. Uh, And then there are what we call Chinese Jews, Chinese Muslims, Mm -hmm. which are called in China mainly Hui and other minority groups. So Hui is the main... Um, the generalized, you know, um, ethnic categorization of Muslims in China, of Chinese speaking Muslims. And uh, basically I would say it's contained. So there's no, uh, China would insist that the Muslims in China, Chinese Muslims are peaceful and their, their, their religion is peaceful. I can tell you that there's no uh, missionary Islam in China. Meaning you don't see Islamic, you know, you don't see the Islamic community there, um, Chinese Muslims making campaigns to convert uh, Chinese into Islam. Because then That's they'll bit, disappear in the street. Yeah, you, you make it sound more dramatic, but uh, but it's, yes. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's Ill, it's illegitimate and
0: uh, and and what about the old cult cults in? Because I I yeah. to what comes to mind is the I. One of the things I've been obsessed with for, for some time is the Epoch Times. Yeah. Uh, and if you guys don't know about them, it's, it's fascinating. It's basically a air quotes news organization funded by this
2: religious movement. They call themselves the Fal- Falun Gang. To some extent, it's connected with Falun Gong, and it's, yeah. but it's not necessarily funded by... Especially in Israel, I'm not speaking about Israel. In yeah.
0: Israel, if you say anything about them, you get uh, sued for slander. So I'm not speaking about. By them. epoch times, they're pretty. Yes, yeah, they're, they're mm. pretty. Uh, I I can't. I won't say anything about them. Uh, but so, no, who was talking uh, about censorship <clears throat> now? I got into arguments with them on Twitter, and uh, anyway, it's. It, it, It's interesting. So I got into this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And also in America, they supported Trump. And there's this all. And they are supposedly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anti-government in China. Yeah,
2: okay. In China. Of course. I don't know. So their whole stance. Let's be very general about it. There's all kinds of uh, of Falun Gong media organs. There's Tang Dai. It's called uh, Tang Dai. uh, New Tang TV and it's uh, and uh, New Tang Dynasty TV and that's a television uh, organ and there's Epoch Times which is a newspaper in Israel it's a magazine more than a newspaper and it's really different and uh, but in general terms you have Falun Gong Falun Gong is a Qigong a sect cult practice group meditative group whatever you want to define them they have a leader what they have a leader they have a leader who is living in New York mm-hmm. in upper state New York. Uh, And they he was exiled, no? Yeah, yeah, he escaped. So in 1999, I was living actually in China when the persecution started, Mm -hmm. like very harsh persecution against Falun Gong and the the Chinese government. uh, That time, Jiang Zemin, the president, uh, almost in a personal way, you know, took a clear stance against Falun Gong, seeing them as as a political threat Mm -hmm. to the government, based maybe on. You know, Chinese history where different kinds of cults could challenge the government, could become, could evolve into uh, a massive, you know, uh, political military movement uh, and rebel against the government and even like challenge the dynasty and topple dynasties as well. Mm -hmm. The latest example would be, you know, the TNP, the Taiping Rebellion in the middle of the 19th century, which began as a kind of a sect, a cult, even Christian influenced cult. uh, in, in one part of China and it evolved into this huge, actually a kingdom which, which controlled parts of China and devastated uh, and with millions of deaths, et cetera. So, So there's this history in China and they, they connected, the government, the CCP, the, the communists, connected the you know, this Falun Gong, Qigong practitioners, this movement with the threat of cults in China. And they, they started the big campaign of, uh, of really persecution which continues until today although they seem to have won this battle against them completely uh, so you don't see any presence of Falun Gong basically in mainland China Mm -hmm. Uh, and this persecution when you hear the complaints about the persecution it's true and and uh, this is things that maybe you heard me speak about uh, in connection with COVID-19 and because I see a connection I Whenever people speak about uh, people who are anti-vaxxers or simply want to challenge or to, te- to, to rethink vaccinations today in the West, and the government and the ma- main, mainstream media you know, say that these are anti-scientific people, it rings for me a bell to 1999 when I was in China. Every day you would put on TV and radio or internet or whatever, and you see government, state, organized campaigns to slander Falun Gong and to label them as anti-scientific, because, for instance, they believed in not going to Western medicine and just doing meditation to to to, to heal from all kinds of which aliens. is anti-scientific. Um, in, in any other world, in any other country, you'd call that a choice, not to use a certain Do, medicine, uh, etc. Yeah, yeah, to is trust. A choice. Yeah, everything is a choice. Yeah, it does it, I don't see contradiction
0: between anti-scientific and a choice. You can choose to take the non
2: scientific path. But mm, is, I don't know, is suicide anti scientific? Is self mutilation, Brit Mila, anti scientific?
0: It's it a cultural if you choice. Say, if you say that, uh, if you claim that circumcision is uh, good for your health, some would argue it is. You can make an argument why it is not a scientific claim, because it's doubtable but you you can you can argue about it in
1: oh, okay you can
0: argue about it about <laughs> it
1: but well, uh, you couldn't argue about it back then in china yeah yeah and today the problem i think with the with the anti-vaxxers is that it's it's not up for debate you're you're labeled as totally anti-scientific for one viewpoint yeah anyway so final, let's
2: let's keep you to keep the china mm-hmm. you know to the chinese yeah. case because we won't solve all the COVID uh yeah. arguments right here yeah. <laughs> But uh, Falun Gong is, a, is is really a case of persecution, a clear, you know, blunted, blunt case of a uh, of very harsh persecution. So, uh, the, the the for instance, the arguments of harvest, the uh, Oregon harvesting, you know, it's when you hear um, apologetic pro Chinese speech, you know, parole that uh, denies these claims of of it's ridiculous because China admitted them. So it, it admitted that they that once they uh, they take a life of a prisoner, of a, of a felon, you know, and they give him death penalty. Then in Chinese understanding, he doesn't own his body. They just killed him. They took his life. So if we're not talking I about mean, a few I mean, in communist
0: words, understanding, you don't, you don't own anything. You don't okay, own your yeah. body even when you're alive. No, okay. the government owns your body. And we
2: all agree that if you do a death penalty, then you take somebody's <clears> life. <throat> he doesn't own his own life because mm-hmm. you took legally by means of, of the law, you took his life. So yeah. in China, <laughs> understanding until a few years ago when they stopped it according to their claims until then it was not even denied mm-hmm. uh, they have a right you know to take organs from uh from uh, somebody who has a death penalty so who exactly has a death penalty do they were, were Falun Gong practitioners simply killed or tortured something that's arguable okay because there's evidence and then there are claims by the government saying denying this so you have to make your own uh uh, research, but uh, uh, harvest—you know—organ uh, harvest was part of this, and the the persecution, the f- you know, full-fledged persecution against Falun Gong was uh, completely clear, and it's still today technically. Uh, so what I—and this is going back to other things that I claim—you know, for instance, against uh, Confucius Institutes uh, all over the world. This this kind of in Western countries, America, Europe, Australia. There's this uh uh talk that criticizing the decision of universities to house confucius institutes within the university. what are they what are confucius institutes uh it's a centralized you know chinese uh network of uh of uh, centers cultural learning centers um, that are purposely put within universities okay and uh and at least in Israel, you see it very clearly that they open two centers in two universities that have the the biggest, you know, the more important uh, um, uh, departments of East Asian Studies, which Which are the Tel Aviv and (coughs) Jerusalem and Hebrew Uh. University. So they have Confucius Institutes uh, in both of them, first Tel Aviv and later uh, in Hebrew University. And it's devised and it's connected with the Department of East Asian, Asian Studies. And every term you have uh, a Chinese director and an Israeli, the local director, which would be a professor of Chinese studies. It's funded
0: by the Chinese
2: yeah, government. Yeah. And your problem is that it's inside the university campuses. Yes, that it's that it's connected with the academia. That's objective. Uh, that's supposed to be objective, and to they, they have one job. Okay, there you ha- we have a very low, small number of professors of researchers in Israel. Who are funded by university to study China. And I think our interest is to have them as open and as unbiased. Independent. Independent, yeah, free to do their research. But they serve as diplomats. Mm -hmm. Once you let them. Yes, once you expect them. No, I wouldn't say. uh, I'm not claiming they are. Yeah, not that far, not all of them, whatever. But when you, a university, asks, requests, a, 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 a sinologist you know who gets a salary from you from the university of, to study China to also serve for a year or two as a director of the Confucius Institute to be connected with the Confucius Institute the Confucian Institute has a role it's propaganda for the Chinese government right so they are
1: propagandists
2: What in in, in in, in, in effect, that element, yeah. So they would say. In effect, say, they are. So so when people argue against me in this, they say, "Oh, we are professors. We have independence. The fact that I'm affiliated in this minor thing, I do, I go to a conference that's organized, co-organized by Confucius Institute, doesn't mean that I'm biased." It's, you it's know?
1: the conflict of interest uh, issue, right? I mean, you, they might say they're independent; and it's a minor thing, but they might second. They might question yeah. whether or not to ask a certain question academically. Yeah, okay. Right.
2: Definitely. Listen, I had an argument arguments with them. I said, uh, and I can ask you this: We talked about Epoch Times. Now, let's let's leave aside your experience with them, which I don't, uh, you know, I don't refute uh, uh, in any way. But there are these activists in Israel who are Falun Gong practitioners, mm-hmm. and some of them are affiliated with media organs of Falun, that connected with Falun Gong, Epoch Times or New Tang Dynasty Television. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I know one of them personally. Uh, who are activists, right? They spend a lot of time criticizing the Communist Party of China and challenging them. They're not Chinese, they're Israeli, okay? Mm-hmm. But, and they published this newspaper. Epoch Times for years was a newspaper before it became this magazine by the, in the local uh, uh, editorship of this group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was other folks who really ran it as a newspaper for years that was dealing with criticizing China. So you had strong presence in Israeli you know, uh, underground media, unofficial media, of, uh, of explaining things about China which were negative at that time, right? But that's part of the game. So I'm asking, how come no university known to me that has a Department of East Asian Studies who periodically or repeatedly invites professors from China, uh, diplomats from the embassy, the ambassador himself, to speak in all kinds of, of, of forums, within the university, did they ever invite anyone from Falun Gong, an Israeli supporter of Falun Gong, or practitioner of Falun Gong, to say his his stance? Mm-hmm. They can argue with him. They can ask him hard questions. But academia is supposed to hear. When when Israeli academia talks about the situation in the occupied territories or Judeo-Samaria, they would have this conversation. They would say, how do we call this? Is this Judeo-Samaria or is this? Hopefully, and not always. I hope, yeah. But, uh, and they would definitely invite all kinds of speakers of uh, you know, very left wing organizations that oppose the Israeli stance within Israeli academia, who challenge the government of Israel. But mm-hmm. you will not get in the university mm-hmm. a speaker who challenges the government of a foreign country, China. You will not. And that's, that's my argument. That, that, uh, and East Ivy Italy. League
0: also has. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: In the United Go, States. Yes. In the United States. Yes. I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't know much about in every university what the effect is and definitely you have scholars who are openly uh, critical of, of yeah. chinese government
0: but when you allow them in your uh it's like a virus <laughs>
2: no i wouldn't use that word of course
1: <laughs> i would so so i, <laughs> I don't <just> did <laughs> i have no
2: i have so my argument is clearly that the intelli- it is
1: it is a it is a virus though in a sense that when you let into because what is a virus is there something that attacks the the functioning or the purposeful functioning of an organism right so when right sort of i i would i would say what i'm saying is hold on i want to i want to kind of lay it out what i'm saying is that an academic institution the function the purpose of an academic institution is to is to uh like progress the endeavor of knowledge right the 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 unfettered uh, uh, um, the unfettered search of truth yeah and when you let an organization that it, the interest of that organization yeah. is other than the unfettered uh, search of truth is to progress an agenda political agenda then it's a virus okay so i i would not use the word virus but i <laughs> i accept your
2: uh, your description without the word virus which i think is okay. too charged and okay. too negative it's political game i don't think uh, the Chinese government is bad in opening these Confucian instances. My criticism is to the universities, okay, to the oh, yeah. departments of East Asian studies that that don't declare we do not want to be affiliated in any way with, uh, yeah. with Confucian instances. I can give you an example, you know, example of uh, I raised within in a Facebook discussion with a professor, a v- veteran professor of Chinese studies in, in one of these universities, and I argued, uh, would, you, would your department? Invite and arrange a talk about the the persecution or whatever you want to call it of Uyghurs currently in China today in Xinjiang today, or the harsh measures the Chinese government is doing uh, to deal with Uyghurs uh, in in Xinjiang. And he said, he said, well, no university would do that because it's too sensitive or something because we. So, so his his stance was it's his natural. you uh, Imagine that no university would dare do it, even a university that doesn't have a Confucius Institute, because all universities in Israel and all over the West want to have good relations with China and with the with the embassy. He's,
1: he's so brainwashed from his no. short tenure as the director of the. Confucius. I, I'm not
2: sure he was the director of the ah, institute, okay. but he's a professor of Chinese studies. He needs access to China. His career depends on having access. But I to do. China. We
1: do see this. We've had other but, guests. I just want to say yeah. and tell me if you if you see this as well. Yeah. We we've had other guests on the show that have been ch- like related to China or have been you know somehow lived in China for a while or, or whatever. And I often see that anybody who kind of dives into the chinese mess some somehow comes out a little brainwashed and and a lot of the times it seems like you know they they're either scared to talk about china or they're unwilling to criticize and sometimes it seems like the uh, the the unwillingness to criticize or to cross that line and they they find themselves in there in this sort of like um cognitive uh uh what is it called dissonance cognitive dissonance yeah. and they end up having to sort of like believe the the chinese lies about embrace you know, or embrace the chinese culture narrative and they and they they end up saying things like that which is like that no academic institution would talk which is a ridiculous thing for yeah. a professor to yeah. say yeah. yeah do you see but, that with a lot of people in academia that are involved in research and of, of of china
2: uh, definitely, and that's something i I'm trying to change, not to change because I have no power, and I'm kind of the you know an outsider here oh, on our podcast. okay, I'm here <laughs> uh, yes, i I know what you're talking about, okay? I'm not uh, crazy okay, and uh, i'm I'm limiting my my you know observation, criticism. yeah, my criticism okay. on this, and i'm I, and I'm limiting it to I understand business people with business interests who know that the rules of the game in China is that you don't speak freely about politics. You know, when you're an Israeli businessman doing business in America or with America, you can be freely Trump or Biden or Democrat. I don't know about that, but okay. You you're never... you. you, you if you invest in America, you're not in real estate in America. You're not cautious of if you say something Trump, you will be you know, you won't be let into yeah. China or something. So you have the rules of it. and even if you're Chomsky and you know and are kind of criticism you're critical of American influence in the world, you'll still be let into America and you your business you know, you, know, you won't be kicked out persona non grande. But in 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 China rules of the game are different and people adhere to it, you know, they accept it. It's the rules of the game here. Much, many more things are sensitive here, and we don't talk about it, and we don't say anything that's, uh, 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 in Chinese, you say, hao ting, means it's hard to hear things that are illegitimate, you know, yeah. uh, politically, right? So there's much more sensitivity here. Business people accept it or, or live with it. I
1: mean, some business people.
2: The, the ones who, as you describe, who have connections with China, and they start accepting these truths and uh, the, yeah. the viewpoint. I'm critical about the academic element, Okay. And I know that there is self-censorship. There is definitely a sense. If you are a sinologist who wants to continue working as a sinologist, you must have access to China. So uh, if you're afraid that the same as they did... It's a catch-22 situation. Yeah, you you can't cross ima- I- invisible lines which you don't know where they are Exactly. But you're wary of crossing them in a way that you will be not able to access China anymore, and not get yeah. grants from China, and not get corporations with the universities there, and not be invited to conferences there, etc. You want to be cool. You want to mm-hmm. be in the in the in the know. Yeah. So you don't want to be too critical, mm-hmm. and that exists even without Confucius Institute. Mm-hmm. My argument is that Confucius Institute is like we say in Hebrew to piss from the yeah. from the jumping thing. <laughs> in English board. piss
1: from the diving board. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like uh, no, don't play by their rules. Insist that your academia is open. That your academia is the same as we we speak in Israel in academia with Shovrim Shtika and with Betzalem, okay, and all these left wing, anti-Israeli government, uh, whatever, even anti-Zionist organizations. But now,
0: when you you criticized China on this show,
2: yeah, will you be able to go there? Okay, so I'll tell you what I decided with, with myself a long time ago that I uh, definitely didn't spend w- whichever much time learning something, in this case, China and Chinese whatever, politics or history, I did not invest my time into something which I found interesting to, in order to shut up about or mm-hmm. to limit my, my ability to speak about it. I think that's, that would be... I'd rather be poor you know, than to be... Uh, Dishonest. Th- yeah, or to shut up about something that I invested so much time in. If yeah. it, if I was not connected to China, okay, and I just... Uh, there's a famous saying by uh, somebody who has my surname, Uri Orbach. Mm-hmm. He was a member, MK, member of Knesset and, and minister. Yeah, and writer. And writer, et cetera, yeah. So there was this time when uh, uh, some someone connected with Falun Gong tried to arrange, I think, uh, an, a, a circle of a group, you know, a cell of members of Knesset who would counter or discuss this thing about harvest organ, uh, organ harvest in China and the persecution of Falun Gong. And uh, all the MKs were very wary uh, wary of this Mm -hmm. and they would rather not be affiliated with this in any way because Mm -hmm. it was known to them that whoever will, will not be able to access China, will never be able to go to China. Mm -hmm. And Uri was one of the only ones in the mainstream political circles uh, of the Knesset that says yes I'm it, it's interesting for me I think it's important I want to hear more I want to be affiliated with this with this kind of challenging and seeing what's going on in China in terms of is this you know holocaust material is this genocide is this uh, religious persecution of the one of the highest degrees so he and he was asked what about the threat that you won't go to China so he said so I won't go to China so I'm saying I'll Okay, I'm saying if I spend so much time learning about China and understanding China to to keep quiet about things, no, I don't think so. Do you feel sorry for the Chinese people? Uh, They're trapped in this? To be honest, the, the good question, answer would be no for most sinologists. And I would say yes. Yes. When I, uh, recently more than ever, because when I see what's uh, happening now with uh, the last phase of COVID, uh, this Omicron, mm-hmm. where well, the whole world is already, I, th- I hope, uh, yeah, say, uh, well, smartened up. Smartened up about COVID and the exaggeration of this uh, uh, curfew lockdown thing. And China is, is at its most cuckoo phase of COVID, much worse than what it was in the beginning in my eyes, and for much less, for m- something that's much clearly less of a threat to were public public health and public safety, unexcusable, you know, exaggeration, uh, in my eyes, total madness. But that's my opinion. I, I wrote something on Facebook recently that I showed that when COVID started uh, and the first lockdown, which was more than a lockdown, it's a curfew, complete curfew in, mm-hmm. in Wuhan in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you had all these Pro Chinese elements connected with the Confucius Institute and the East Asian Studies departments making these videos of supporting China and saying, Wuhan Jiao, Junguo Jiao, meaning go ahead, go ahead, China, full force, you know, Kadima, continue with the lockdown, continue Mm -hmm. with the struggle against COVID. In my eyes, this support in the earliest stage, instead of saying, What in the beginning, analysts were saying in Western countries in the newsrooms were saying, wow, China is doing things that democracies cannot do. Democracies cannot consider locking down entire populations because of some threat of a virus, which is not much more than flu, than influenza. This is only relevant to China and North Korea, it's not relevant to us in the West. And then people in Israel and other parts of the world said Jun Jiao supported china became normalized in recent years Mm -hmm. i mean the communist government became normalized and legitimized in the way that when they were doing these these crazy measures of the lockdown the first lockdown in wuhan people were support showing support all over the world the result was that northern italy was the first to adopt the lockdown and then uk went down and in my view the rest of the world except for sweden you know adopted chinese measures Mm -hmm. which in i see them as kind of political adoption of yeah i call it chinese atheism it's Mm -hmm. political atheism it's saying god does not have a right to kill people with viruses like he's been doing since beginning of nature we there's no god that decides the state the the state is a complete god and the state has to have this mission and and, in china because they were singled out as as, prevent, as, as hiding information at the beginning of the outbreak and this famous doctor, Li Wenliang, who died after being the first to talk about it uh, and he was taken to the police and then was shut up. So the government made an excessive response and they, they did these lockdowns and they, and we no, I adopted never, that. I
1: never, I never thought about the whole the God argument, like that, the sort of Tower of Babel parallel, right, That that we're trying to we're trying to, you know, build yeah. this 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 tower to to reach yeah. the Almighty, and we we think that it's in our hands to fight this force of nature or this this divine force. I see this as
2: a Chinese political worldview. Yeah. It's is, a force. We of used nature. to be different to that,
1: unless, yeah, ah, yeah, may, maybe oh, the force the, of Chinese. That's complicated. <laughs> yeah, <So laughs> maybe, that's, <laughs> maybe yeah no, but it is a force of nature. It might have been, it might have uh, been yeah. a consequence of action. Of, Human action, yeah, but, uh, like Jurassic Park. Was yeah, the... but still, that's interesting. That's really fascinating. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap things up, but but we're really glad we had you on. Yeah, that was, was really, really interesting. Fun. Kind of like a crazy, unexpected journey through China, mm-hmm. yeah. from religion to COVID <laughs> yeah. to yeah. Confucius centers. Uh, super interesting. You
0: have a gallery in Zechariah. That right? too, yeah. So let's plug the gallery it's called Shocket gallery okay I and mean, just google
2: Shocket gallery it's, SHO. it's actually connected it, it has a connection with my uh choice to speak out to not be wary of how i speak you have iyy pieces there for actually i met him recently and i don't S- like his art what i can tell you. <laughs> I'm, it's i call it classical <laughs> my my take on art is more classical so right <laughs> you met him
1: yeah, that was really funny. In, in Cambridge a few weeks ago, uh, yeah. wow, I, wow. Went, I went to That's his exhibit. The most intellectual, like pompous thing I've ever heard. I just met Ai Weiwei Yeah, it was at, by uh, chance actually. at Cambridge. I, I was actually <laughs> actually it was a Shabbat
2: afternoon. I walked around Cambridge with my wife, and I knew that there was this Iwayway exhibit in the gallery. So I okay. walked in the exhibit, and then my, I walk around, and my wife tells me, "Isn't that Iwayway over there?" And I see it, and it is. So I came wow. up, and I started talking to him, you know, in Chinese. Wow. And he flattered my Chinese, and we talked a bit. It was really nice. And I that's was wearing awesome. my Shabbat shirt with, with stains from the gefilte, you know. From the <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, okay, so Shoket yeah. is gallery.
0: S-H-O-K-E-T? Yes, yes. yes. Okay, so shoket.art, you can find the website. And
2: it's in Zichon Yaakov. It's in Zichon Yaakov. So, and it, I opened it a year ago, and I admit that in the back of my mind was this idea that... Uh, Um, The way that my choice regarding China uh, is such that I do not want to have my income, my prospective income, you know, dependent on China anymore Mm -hmm. or or on access to China. You're on social
0: media? That
2: too, yeah. Noam Noam Urbach, Urbach. CH at the end. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you like what we do go to 2 slash donate and send some money our way Um, and that is it see you on the next one
1: yep see you see you next episode guys bye bye thank Thank you. you so much guys